Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. We just wrapped up a special little series there from our track sessions from the Exponential Conference this year. And now we're jumping back into track sessions from the National Disciple Making Forum that we hosted last year. Next up is Small Circle, given one of their track sessions. Small Circle is a collection of disciple making tools with a one to one dynamic. They believe that deeper levels of relationships can be found beyond the group experience. Small Circle captures that life-changing power of one-to-one relationships. So make sure you check out smallcircle.com and also download their app for free. All right, let's jump in and hear these track sessions from Small Circle. Here we go. Hey, my name is Steve McCoy. Thank you so much for coming. I know in a conference you have a million different choices to make and it's always overwhelming. So I intend to fill your brain with even more information. Um, I'm a pastor and next year will be my 40th year. And uh, so I like to say that because I'm coming to you as a pastor. And uh, you'll see uh, from uh, being in our session that we offer our tools at no cost. We planted our church uh, 15 years ago, and we know what that's like. And uh, so we, we're here to champion other local churches. Our tools are in over 100 countries in the world, and uh, we're above 40 languages, and so God has done an amazing thing. So we're very happy to introduce that uh, to you. Today, this first session, I love this first session. It's a little heady at first, so if you didn't get a nap, that'd be a good time. I'll wake you up in 15 minutes, but it's a little heady, but I think it's such a critical, critical conversation that I wish we were having more of in the church. I think it's important for us to realize how God has made us and what our place in culture is. All right, uh, so you have signed up for how to have a better Sunday school class. Is that it? Was that the, no, 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 okay, that's good. <laughs> We are talking today about why we are scientifically wired to get past a group setting. Let me say from the beginning, in our church, we probably have 35 what would be typical groups. So this is not an anti-group protest. As we'll see, uh, every environment and dynamic setting in the church, whether it's corporate worship whether it's a micro group, a typical group of 10 to 12 people, whatever that is, I I believe that they're beautifully distinctive. And so we're going to cover four areas here. And again, if you want to swipe along, text small circle to 97,000, you'll get these notes exactly. We're going to look at uh, physical engineering, how God has made us, our spiritual design. We're created in the image of God. We're going to look at what this means for us and socially, our social relevance. And we're also going to look at our ability to impact culture. And we're going to do all of that in one hour. So let me start with some facts. Um, And this is where it gets a little heady, but I find it fascinating. We are told in Psalm 139, of course, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and we're created in that way. So I'm just going to give you some facts. I have studied this for the last three or four years and we could spend five hours on information that probably lose you along the way. But just to remind ourselves, Psalm 139, you create it for you created my inmost being. That means that God knows 
the nuances of our thinking and our DNA and our relational capacity. He understands what makes us hide and is afraid. He understands our emotions, our need for relationships. But as we're going to look at this this, uh, session, every church on the planet says we're a friendly church. Every church on the planet is like, hey, we're about relationships. Okay, we're all using that phrase. But in this session, we're going to ask the question, what kind of relationships are we created for? We are created for community, but I believe, as you're going to see, we're created for intimacy. So what we're reading here from David is a very intimate message. What what we find from David is that there is an intimacy that we are designed to experience. And I would propose to you that when we don't experience that, we see an eruption as we are in our own culture. More anger, more road rage, more crime, because there's something missing that God created us for. You created my inmost being. I praise you because I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. My frame was not hid from you when I was made. Uh, when God wove us together in the depths of our mother's womb. It's just amazing. So let me give you some facts and then we'll get into something I believe is very relevant. Uh, friendship is only documented in a few species, but it is universal in human beings. We are created for friendships. Scientists measure the relationality of a living being by how many neurons are in the prefrontal cortex. So when you look at the animal kingdom, believe it or not, killer whales are near the top. Uh, Seems like it goes against their title, but they're really large bottlenose dolphins. That when you look at killer whales, I know they got a bad rap, but uh, and when you look at them, they're rarely alone. The more neurons that are in the prefrontal cortex, the more tribal a species is. At the top of the food chain are human beings. So when God created us, he created us in such a way that we are designed to be relational, but at a certain level. There is this word called encephalization. It's the measurement of the size of the brain compared to the size of the body and and how the body is able to function. So at 11.5 billion, the killer whale at dolphins and such are pretty close under that. But in terms of the combination of encephalization and the number of neurons in our prefrontal cortex, the next animal species down is 50% lower than human beings. What that is telling us is that when God created us, he truly, scientifically, not just, this is a Bible verse that we ought to say, love one another, right? We are truly created this way. And again, in the church culture, as we're going to see, sometimes I think we fight against the way that we are designed to have intimate relationships. Uh, There's a guy named Robin Dunbar. He is a brilliant sociologist in what is now called the Dunbar number. The Dunbar number is, he begins with 150, 150. 150 is about the number, I've listed some of these things. If people still write Christmas cards, anybody writing Christmas cards? Okay, yes, we have card writers, awesome. If you were to go through your Christmas card list, On average, there's 68 families, which comes out to about 150 people. Uh, Business offices, military planners, they're all groups. Historically, villages have been about 150 people. Now watch this. 
over 80% of churches in the United States are 150 people or less because pastors tend to be shepherdy type people. And so they are trying to take care of everyone if they haven't learned to multiply. Therefore, they're going to reach not their church capacity, their building capacity, their rural area capacity, but their human capacity. They're trying to do something beyond what they have been created to do. So we have this capacity. Now, I will say as a disclaimer, Robin Dunbar is an avid, very outspoken evolutionist. So uh, if you pick up his book, don't blame me. <laughs> Eat the fish, spit out the bones. So the species with the biggest brains relative to body size are precisely those who mate as monogamously. Only 5% of mammals mate monogamously. So I want you, you know, when I'm reading the Old Testament, you know, so-and-so had many wives, I don't get that. I don't understand how that is even possible at an intimate level, much less a lot of other things. I mean, you know, we, my wife and I have celebrated 25 years of marriage. She would definitely say, I don't know how I could have two of Steve's, but just on an, you know, an intimate level, it's very difficult. There is a, th a thing called TPJ, temporal junction. This is part of our brains that are activated when we share something that's intimate. When we're sharing something like, I'd really like to share something that's very meaningful to me, there's something that kicks into our brain that is almost like energy for us. It's, it's uh, a bit of jazz. Oxytocin, we know about, dopamine. These are bonding hormones that God has given to us as human beings that, that have a higher level of trust. We see this in uh, physical intimacy between a man and a woman. The, the, the levels of oxytocin go up when a woman is giving birth or when a woman is breastfeeding. The, the levels of oxytocin are elevated in those moments. So again, what I'm doing is just painting a picture of like, this is not what we should be. This is who we really are. This is our wiring. So as we look at the church culture, we should reflect the Lamborghini that God has made and not have a Volkswagen. Don't mean to offend anybody that's a Volkswagen owner, but you see what I'm saying. Why not play into the way that God has created us? That makes sense? Yes. Robin Dunbar comes down from this 150 number and says, because we're wired like this, I think it's, the name of his book is something like, how many friends can a person have or how many friends can a person need or something like that. So it's brilliant. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. He, his proposal is, the Dunbar number is that a person cannot have more than three to five close best friend relationships, including your close kin, like a spouse. So all morning, I've been trying it out. When people come to my table, I'm like, hey, um, how many best friends do you have? I mean, really long term, and nobody said above two. So anybody have more than five? Good, because I was going to ask you to leave if you did, because you're <laughs> kind of blowing the whole thing here. Not because you don't want to, because you can't. You can't have that relationship. So let me explain this word. A dyad is 
uh, one possible unique relationship. So if, if we had a triad, we'd have three of us, right? So a dyad is like uh, that only, it's just one possible relationship. So when you have two people in this relationship, you have one dyad, right? Two people, one dyad. If you have three people, how many dyads do you have? Excellent. You have a triad. <laughs> a triad diet. You have three. I know some of you are like, that's a trick question. I know it. The guy <laughs> looks sneaky, man. That's right. You have three possible. Okay. What if you have four people? How many diets do you have? Huh? Four. four. It's exponential. It starts multiplying. Watch oh. this. Yeah, watch this. You actually have six. Oh, okay. <laughs> which I'm not. So I'm going to show you a math formula now that I did get help from my high school son. Uh, to. Here's the thing. Watch this. When you're in a group of four, there are great things happening, by the way. And there's community, etc. But intimacy, the way we've created to experience, we've been created to experience four people and eight people and a hundred people and you know, just like we did. We have 1,400 people in a worship uh, collective thing. We were created to have that, but we do that very well. We have a lot of intentionality in our church culture towards collective worship. We'll have three services this Sunday at my church. We have put a lot of investment into kids' ministry, greeting teams, follow-up teams, prayer teams, preaching worship team, right? I mean, there's a lot of hours going into these three services on Sunday. There's a lot of hours going into our group ministry, curriculum, follow. We do sermon-based questions. You're going to write the questions. You got follow-up. You got all this, all these different things. But the intentionality at this smaller level has been far less, would you agree, in our church culture? And we're wired for that. So here's the formula. If you aren't bored already, here we go. N times N minus 1 over 2. So, for example, if you have 4, 4 times 4 minus 1, or 4 times 3 is 12, and 12 divided by 2 is 6. That's how you get the number. So here's what's fascinating to me. So I was wondering about these guys. That is not John Lennon. That is Jesus, if you didn't know. Jesus and his 12 disciples. That's 13. So how many dyads did Jesus have? Well, you would think initially, well, he had 12. But that's only the relationships that Jesus had with each of them. Because in a group, right, if this center section is our group, I am affected if you two are having a fight. Yeah. I'm designed for that, right? I'm when we have a, a group setting, and two people are, you know, James and John are fighting over which seat, you know, beside God they're going to sit at, right? And their mom gets involved. That's, that's a, a triad right there. Uh, I'm affected by that. Well, how about him? That's where the tension comes up. This is not the right number. It is not 12, 12 people, 12 dyads. In fact, if you do the number, if you do the formula, in Jesus' group of 13, there were 78 possible unique relationships. Think about that. So we say, hey, are you in a small group? Well, kind of. You see what I mean? Because here's what this looks like. Here's the dynamic. Here's the most dynamic part of the show. <laughs> this is what this looks like. 
So when we're in a group, again, it's, there's a great thing happening. There's community, there's prayer, there's diversity, there's, there's not intimacy. We just have to say that. I've been in four decades of groups where almost every time the group says, I feel like we need to get closer. And I get that. I understand that. Um, I had some interaction. Most of you know the uh, name Larry Crabb. Uh, Larry's uh, kind of a Christian counselor, written four million books, I think. And so I read this book called Safest Place on Earth. It talks about this intimacy and relationship. What was fascinating for me, because in the church culture, again, no criticism, but in the church culture, if we think in terms of circles, most of us operate in what I'm going to call a two-circle operating system. What I mean by that is the big circle is collective worship of some kind, and the mid-circle are groups. It represents groups of some kind, Bible studies, home groups, adult Sunday school, whatever that is. So this is a smaller group than this, but it still has typically 10 to 12 people, right? When you look at this in the church culture, so pre-COVID, lots of travel around the world, everywhere I go, how many people's operating system is a two-circle operating system? I would say 98%. Again, nothing wrong with that. What I'm proposing to you is perhaps... There is a smaller circle, even in the ministry of Jesus. When you look at Jesus' ministry, he had the crowds, he had his core, he had the close, Peter, James, and John. He had his confidant, John. John was the only guy that came back to the cross. John, John should not have taken care of Jesus' mother. In tradition, Jesus should have chosen his half-brother. Uh, John had been homeless for three and a half years. Didn't make sense that he's going to now take care of mom. But he's the one that Jesus looked from the cross and said, this is your mom now. There was an intimacy there. John writes a different gospel than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He writes an internal and eternal, but he gives us an internal look at who Jesus is. John recorded uh, the, the prayer in Gethsemane because he was able to get that from. John was the only guy that did not ask, hey, who is it? He, or, or, is it me? John leaned his head into Jesus' chest and said, who is it? Because he knew it wasn't him. John was the only one that wasn't martyred. John was the only one that referred to himself as I am the disciple that Jesus loved. You mean he didn't love the others? No. But there was a uniqueness. There was a David-Jonathan oneness that Jesus had. So what I find fascinating is that Jesus wasn't a champion of one-to-one. -one. He wasn't a champion of group. He was a champion of all of them because he understood that we needed all of them. The challenge, again, is that we have emphasized these two, rightfully so, but not so much this one. And I'm going to propose to you and hopefully prove to you in the 47 minutes that we have left how important that, uh, that is in our church culture. Disciple Makers Podcast listeners, I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. 
He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers. And by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. So when we look at how God made us, of course, we are made in the image of God. But I'm, I, for me, at my age and my place in my journey, I'm tired of cliches like, hey, we're a friendly church or we're created to be relational. Why don't we go further than that and say, what kind of image are we, are we created in? We're created in an our image. Let us make man in our image, meaning we know that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? This Trinitarian image, but that Trinitarian image. So the question is, if we're created in the relational image of God, what does that relationship look like? And that relationship, we get glimpses of it here and there through the Bible. But for me, one of the greatest glimpses is John 1.18. Again, who's writing? It's John. Of course it's John. John is going to give to us a perspective that is really amazing. He, has, he starts his gospel and, he, and in his, his first letter too. Same phrase, no man or no one has ever seen God. It is a very critical message to understanding the book of John. That's why John said he is the bread of life because no man has ever seen him. Let me, try to, let me try to explain him to you. He is the living water. He is the resurrection. He is the way, the life, the truth. He's, he's trying to explain because nobody has ever seen God. He says in his letter, if no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, okay, how? But how are we going to love one another? So no one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father. We get a little glimpse because we're saying we're created in the image of God. So let's say this is God. I'm not making an image of God because I don't know what it is. And here we are down here. We're praying and we're like, hey, we're created in this image of God. What in the world does that look like? And so he's giving us a little glimpse that the closeness and the intimacy Jesus said, I and the Father are one, right? And it wasn't just like, hey, we agree on everything. But we're seeing here that he was in the bosom of the Father. That was the intimate relationship that we're created in. And we, above all living creatures, are given an assignment. The assignment is that we are bearing the image of God. That was not given to plants, not given to trees, rivers, fish, uh, none of it wasn't to the universe. The universe declares the glory of God. So we go out, I go out to the beach and I see, you know, the, the, the beach, the horizon, everything else. And I'm saying, man, the vastness of God. We see the colors of the, the creativity of God. We see the genius of God. The heavens declare all those things, but the heavens cannot declare the relational side of God, the intimate side of God. He has left that up to us. So when we see this, this image, we are given this, uh, this, this responsibility. So something happened in the garden that, that broke that, right? So as soon as Adam sinned, he hid. That was his first agenda. God came walking in the garden and he hid. I will propose to you that especially men have mastered the art of hiding. It's what I call the wall of Adam. 
we neatly build the wall of Adam. And it's so weird. This is where the tension, like Paul talking about the tension of, you know, the, the, the civil war that's inside of us. There's a tension that says, I want intimacy. I want closeness, but I'm also afraid of it. I'm also like, hey, don't, don't ask me anything. This is why Facebook and social media are so popular. Everybody, I've seen enough great meatloafs on Facebook. I don't need to see another one. Pride promotes our best self. It protects our worst self. It promotes our best self. Who has ever seen on Facebook, hey, just had a horrible argument with my wife this morning. Just want everybody to know. And then you get 53 likes on that one. It's not the way we work. So it, the culture plays into who we are as hiders. So Jesus came along and said, hey, we're going to restore all things. And so for those that God foreknow, he also predestined for us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Like, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were in the likeness of his son. But now we have to be in a restoration process with the Holy Spirit to allow the Spirit of God to begin to break us down so that we can start looking more and more like God. Does that make sense? So I want to do a little bit of, uh, I want to do a little exercise with you, all right? So if you have a piece of paper, to, 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 we're going to do a little artwork together, all right? So you can't use your phone, sorry, you have to do, you have to scribble on something. So yeah, if you got a piece of paper, she's got a notebook, just empty it out for everyone else. <laughs> I'm going to give you a, a minute to draw an image, okay? Yeah, going to give you a minute to draw an image. In fact, I'm going to clump you up in teams. So this is going to be a team over here, all right? Starting with my friend from Georgia, right from here, you're going to be a team. Uh, we'll, call the, we'll call this whole section here a team. That'll make it easy. And uh, we'll call this whole section a team, okay? You're going to be a team. But you're going to draw individually to begin with, all right? Mm-hmm. You five right there. Yeah. So you don't have to turn right now, but um, all right. Everybody got a pencil or a pen and a piece of paper, something to draw on? Excellent. All right. I am going to give you 60 seconds to draw your best tiger. Tiger? Tiger. Ready? Go. I'll give a little energy for you. And time's up. I'm just thinking about people who are listening on the podcast. Like, I knew we should have gone to that one. I was just, dang it, what are they dancing up there? So, all right. Here's what I want you to do. In your team, here's where the tension begins with the disciples. In your team, I want you to pick the winning picture. The best. All right? Within your team. I know you don't know each other. You're getting ready to. All right, here's what I want you to do. All right, I'm going to give you another 45 seconds. Mm -hmm. But the winner, I want you to stand or wherever you're seated so the others can see your picture, okay? And everybody else is going to copy that picture. And I'm only giving you 45 seconds on this. Copy the picture of the winner. Ready? <laughs> copy it. Here we go. Excellent. All right. So here's the question. Was the, here's the question I want to ask. Was your, was your second drawing was your second drawing easier to draw than your first one? Yes. Why? 
because you had a model. Was your second drawing better than your first one? Yeah. You don't, I know you don't want to make any money, man. <laughs> yeah, you guys had a tough one because that was so good. But f in general, it was easier to draw and we had probably better product. Okay. When Jesus is praying in John chapter 17, there are three parts to that prayer. He prays to the Father and says, hey, I've accomplished what, I've given you glory by accomplishing what you've set out for me to do, right? Second part of the prayer, I'm praying for the disciples that I've been with because he knew what they would face. Third part of the prayer, beginning in verse 20, I'm going to pray for those who will believe in their message. That's us. What I find fascinating is that we get to hear what Jesus would pray for us. Now, he could have done, he could have prayed for a lot, right? He could have prayed, I pray there'll be Bible scholars. I could, and nothing wrong with Bible scholars. I could have, I, I pray that they will be prayer warriors. Nothing wrong with prayer warriors. I pray that they will be amazing evangelists. Could be amazing evangelists. Nothing wrong with that. But the first thing he starts with is exactly like the greatest commands. Love God with all you got and love people like you love yourself. He says, I pray, Father, that they will be one. But then he adds, because sometimes we look at that and think, oh, so what we're doing now would be fulfilling that prayer, right? We're from different churches and different ages and different uh, genders, and we're but we're all here and nobody's fussing. So we're, we're being one. But he adds a disclaimer to that, and it's found in John 17. My prayer not, is not for these disciples that were with him alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, rippling out through history, that all of them may be one, Father. Here it is. Just as. You are in me. John 1.18. And I am in you. I'm praying that they will experience intimate level of relationships. And then he says, I pray that they'll also experience that relationship with you, God, Father, right? And then he goes on, so that the world may believe. No one has ever seen God. You see the theme? No one has ever seen God except the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father. I'm praying that for them, just as you are in me, in my bosom, I'm in your bosom. I'm praying that for them so that the world will look on and say this is different because my proposal, quite passionately to you, is that we think we're going to be friendly and have Wednesday night dinners and the world is going to look in and say, I'd like a piece of that action. They already do that better than we do. They go to the ball games. They go to the bars. They go to wherever, right? Uh, they're having friendships and community and picnics and barbecues. And, you know, sometimes I look at the world I'm like, hey, they're having more fun than we are, right? But there is an intimacy that is missing. And this is where we get into the social relevance of what we're talking about. This is super critical. This is disciple making is not all about what's happening within the four walls of our church. It's what's happening on the outside of our church. There is a significant shift in our culture right now. A significant shift to the marketplace. And I believe if we miss it, we're going to be like Radio Shack and Blockbuster. There's a significant opportunity that we have to share the gospel but also to live out our assignment, which is to be the image bearers of God, the relational image bearers of God, the intimately relational image bearers of God, not just, not just being friendly.
So let me give you some statistics that are absolutely riveting, okay? In 2016, the United States Surgeon General declared the greatest risk to human health, not heart disease or cancer, but loneliness, isolation, isolation. Uh, countries around the world are figuring this out and they're creating official government positions. In the UK, in India, in Japan, there are now positions called Minister of Loneliness, like you would have a prime minister. In the UK, over 9 million people say that they are often or always feeling lonely. In, in India, it is the loneliness is through the roof. In the UK, in 2018, Prime Minister Theresa May at the time, she said, for far too many people, loneliness is a sad reality of modern life. I want to confront this challenge for our culture and for all of us to take action to address the loneliness endured by the elderly, by caregivers, by soldiers, by law enforcement agents, by teachers, by students, by singles, by married, by divorce, by widows. All of these levels of society, people who have no one to talk to or share their thoughts and experiences with. When we first planted our church, we started with groups. And in my group was a, a gal, super nice gal. And she confided in our group one night. She goes, you know, I've been in counseling for the last 10 to 12 years. I'm like, wow, wow, I'm glad to hear that, you know, you're, you're working through whatever you're working through, 10 to 12 years. And as we got to, you know, into the conversation, she said, I'm, I'm actually fine. I just don't have a friend. So I'm paying a weekly premium just so that I have someone to talk to. Think about that. Over 50% of Americans, I just, I, I read this a few years ago. Over 50% of Americans have not formed a best friend friendship relationship. Over half of Americans in the past five years. One statistic says that 93%, that's almost everybody, 93% of American men say they have no best friend. Pre-COVID, I travel quite a bit around the world. I thought this was an American phenomenon. It is not. If we think men try to be macho in American culture, go to the Middle East. Go to Africa. Go to Jamaica. There's such a cultural depth of history that leads us to be who we are. So we're fighting in ourselves this spiritual civil war, this relational design, we're fighting cultural things around us where men are taught to be men and not to share these kinds of things. And all the time, we're supposed to be image bearers of a, an intimately relational God. Think about that. You see the tension. All of these statistics are pre-COVID that I've given to you. Our small circle tools are designed specifically for one, a table for two or one-to-one -one relationship. I will tell you that when COVID sprang into place, all around the world, their use went through the roof. Sometimes for practical reasons, because you know, we all got Zoom fatigue of trying to you know, Zoom with a group of 12 people and you know, everybody's stepping on each other's toes. It was much easier, to be honest with you. 
it was much easier for two people to meet at a cafe and keep six feet apart rather than meet 12 people, you know, and everybody's six feet apart, so that's, I don't know what the square footage of that is, but it's a lot. But isolation at that point grew exponentially. So all of these statistics are multiplied by, and we don't even know the effect of it yet. Some people are wearing a mask now for safety reasons. Some people are wearing it because it's now part of their, their thinking, part of their fiber. And that's not a criticism toward those that are. I'm being empathetic. I was at Fort Bragg uh, about uh, five or six weeks ago. Uh, they're, they're looking to do a military version of our tools because, and I'm trying to read as much as I can about uh, military and soldiers. An interesting, gr really interesting article that in World War II, when soldiers came back and re-entered civilization, it was a long journey back. They had time to download about stories, about friends they had lost, about their wounds, about what was happening. They, had, they got on a boat. The boat took a long time to cross the Atlantic or the Pacific or whatever. Now you're doing a tour in Vietnam or you're doing a tour in the Middle East and you hop on a plane and 18 hours later, you're back in the cul-de-sac going to Michael's craft store with your wife or your spouse or your husband. And nobody gets your world and there was nobody to download. So since September 11, 2001, 9-11, 7,000 service members died during military operations. Since that same time, suicide in the, in the same military is four times as high, over 30,000 suicides in our military. I sat with a law enforcement guy that has a, just a tremendous national network. Same thing. Isolation and loneliness is in every fiber of our culture. My mom uh, just passed and went to be with the Lord just two weeks ago. And she was ready. She, she was a disciple maker. Her health had declined. She wanted to go home and be with the Lord. Uh, but I will tell you, it was tough. She was in a, uh, one month before COVID, she was put in a rehab facility and just walking up and down the halls. If you've never done it, most of us have. It's like loneliness is just coming out of every room is a predicament. I say it this way, I believe that God chooses leaders to move predicaments to solutions. Hey, I want to interrupt this episode real quick because I want to give a shout out to four of our key partners who will be leading track sessions at the National Disciple Making Forum coming up in Nashville, October 5th and 6th. Check out Awana for information on family discipleship at awana.org. Take a look at Mercy Multiplied for discipling women, especially women who need special support. Their website is mercymultiplied.com. Do you find yourself wanting to help in transitioning your church to a disciple-making focus? Then go to navigatorschurchministries.com for more resources. And lastly, should you need help with sustainable discipleship models, head on over to sustainablediscipleship.com. I encourage you to join one of the track sessions that these organizations will lead at our forum. We want to thank Awana, Mercy Multiplied, Navigators Church Ministries, and Sustainable Discipleship for their support. All right, let's get back to the episode. 
God uses leaders to move predicaments to solutions. And there's a room full of leaders that can make a change in this part of our culture. The culture is desperate. And here's the power of a table for two. Sometimes when I'm having a training or workshop like this, I'm just going to make proposals. And you you connect the dots as, as as you think is correct. But I'm going to propose that most of our church culture has leaned more into extroverts than it has introverts. And that's 50% at least of our population. Some, some statistics show that as high as 70-80% of people are introverts. Just go into your own church and ask somebody to public speak next Sunday and watch their face. <laughs> Still the highest fear over death to public speak, right? So we have these environments of, you know, uh, that, are, that are really designed for people that are more okay with doing what I'm doing right now. Hey, I can get in front of you. I can talk. I feel comfortable with that. Now we ask them to do, you know, lead a group. The most shy people that I know, they make unbelievable impact at a table for two. And I got to tell you, as a pastor, it just jazzes me beyond words to see everybody gets a seat at a table for two at disciple making at this level. Now, again, let me say, this is not anti-group, this is not anti-anything. It's just I'm saying this is, a, I believe, a missing ingredient in our culture. Here's the cultural reform. Jesus said for us to confess our sins to one another that we might be healed. So, show of hands, how many people are comfortable sitting in a group of 12 people confessing your sins? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, did you? Awesome. Get out. So, I, <laughs> would you lit- you would feel that we way? We do it in our church. Are you uh, an extrovert or an introvert? I'm a very much an introvert. Uh huh. And and how long did that take to get there? Um. Well, the group is relationally. It's students that I've taught mm. that are part of my small group. Yeah. So I mean, relationally, it's been years. Years. Yeah. Yeah. So in this book by Larry Crabb um, called uh, The Safest Place on Earth, he's, it was republished under a different name, same content, something like Building True Spiritual Community. He writes about this intimate relational level, turning our souls toward one another is his phrase. So as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm fascinated with how does he get to this level? Because you, obviously you're rare, right? How does he get to this level in a two-circle operating system church culture? So I emailed him, thinking, you know, the likelihood of me hearing back pretty close to zero. And I said, hey, we're, we're aiming at, in our church discipleship at a one-to-one level, et cetera. And I'm fascinated as how you could get to the level that you write about in your book in a group setting. Are you able to accomplish that? Well, lo and behold, after about four months, I got an email back from him. Very nice. He said, hey, appreciate what you're doing, this, that, and the other. Thanks for your compliments about the book. He said, in our church, it's a larger church, we have many groups. And he says, of all the groups, just like you, sitting and all the people represented from many different states, you're the only ones. It's rare. He said, of all the groups, my group is the only one that I know can get to this level. He said, for two reasons. What you said. We've been together for 10 years. Nobody has left our group. Nobody has joined our group. So we've built relationships, right? Here's number two. He said, I'm a professional. I'm a professional. 
I know how to dig it out of people. And in upcoming workshops, we are talking about everyday people. Disciple making is not just for leaders. Disciple making is for everyday people. And when you can get your everyday people at this level, the life change. So for a pastor of 40 years, what we've seen, we've done this in our own local church for the last nine, the life change is exponentially different and deeper. Why? Because we're going to get to a level where we can do this. At a table for two, after time, we now feel comfortable, safe, to say, hey, I'm really struggling with something. So I want to do a little test with you, okay? Same teams. In fact, I'm going to make, I'm going to make this team a little smaller. First two rows on a team, last row is a team, okay? Uh, I'm going to split this team up, these three right here, these four right here. You guys are fine. You guys are fine. Okay. Uh, one person's going to be the scribe. So pick, uh, and let me pick it for you. Uh, the person who got the least number of hours of sleep in your, in your group. You have to find that out in 20 seconds, right? All right. All right. You ready to roll? Here's what I want you to do. Whoever is the scribe, who's the scribe over here? Yeah, you look pretty sleepy. Uh, <laughs> who's the scribe back here? Okay. Yes, 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 yes. Excellent. We, we have identified, who's sleepy over here? Uh-huh. We have identified the sleepy people. All right. Here's what I want you to do. If you're writing, I want you to draw four vertical lines to create three columns. Four vertical lines to create three columns. So one, two, three, just like that. Okay. At the top of the, the, the first column, I want you to draw a big circle. At the top of the second column, a mid-sized circle. At this uh, last one, I want you to draw a small circle. Okay? Here's what we're going to do. This represents different conversational settings. So this is on a Sunday morning, if that's when you have church, Saturday night, Sunday morning. Let's say Sunday morning in the lobby of your church. This is like, hey, man, how you doing? Good. How about you? How's the wife? Great. Excellent. See that game last night? Yeah. Awesome. I'll see you next Sunday. That's that conversation, right? This conversation is going to be in a group of about 10 to 12 people, and you've only been together about three or four months. Okay, you got the vibe? This is your best friend. This is a long-term, close, table-for-two relationship that is within your capacity and your design as a human being. Long-term relationship, okay? Sunday morning lobby, 10 to 12 people, three to four months, table for two, okay? All right, I'm going to give you a series of conversations. And as a team, you're going to decide where you would feel comfortable having that conversation. Only one check per conversation. So let me give you uh, an example. This is a new shirt. So I see you, in, in, uh, you know, somewhere and you say, hey, Steve, really like your shirt? Oh, thanks a lot. It's a new shirt. Would I feel comfortable in, a, in the lobby of a church? I probably would. So I would put a check there. If I put a check there, obviously I'm comfortable there and there. So I don't have to put a check. All right. Only one check. All right. Here we go. I'm going to move pretty quick through this conversation. So as a team, you decide where your one check is going to be. I just want to see if I can make you mad at each other. I tried the artwork. We're going to... First conversation. I'm going to get a new job next week. How's your week going? Fantastic. I have been out of work for the last three or four weeks looking for a job, and I land at one. I'm going to get a new job. Where are you going to put, where are you going to put your check 
Big circle, mid circle, small circle. Where are you going to put a check? Come to your conclusions quickly. I got to line them. You guys ready? Excellent. You guys ready? Excellent. All right. All right. Here's the next one. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Here's the next one. You got one check? All right. Here's the next one. It's the opposite. I'm getting ready to lose my job, I think. Me and my supervisor have been like at odds for about three or four months. This whole thing with pandemic, I don't know where I'm going to find a job, and I'm lying awake at night. I'm wondering, what am I going to do next? Where are you having that conversation? You're going to have that at one church lobby, group 10 to 12, only a table for two. Next one. All right, here comes the next one. You got your one check for that one? Excellent. Here's the next one. Every single time my spouse and I talk about anything important, it ends up in a huge fight. I think we're in trouble. Here's the next one. You guys ready? Here's the next one. So I borrowed my uh, teenager's car this past weekend, and I found a bag of illegal drugs. Where am I going to have that conversation? I borrowed my teenager's car this weekend, and I found a bag of illegal drugs. You guys ready for the next one? All right, here's the next one. I actually used the illegal drugs. I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, all right, here's the next one. I am addicted to pornography. All right, for the sake of time, last one, because we keep on going with this. But here's the last one. My, uh, my in-laws are coming in town. And I haven't spoken to them in 10 years because we had a major blowout 10 years ago. And I am stressed through the roof about this coming weekend. Followed by, hey, can I crash on your couch? <laughs> Where are you going to have that conversation? You got all your checks? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to add up the number of checks that you had in the third column. All right, let me start over here. How many did you guys have? Three. All right, uh, three. Uh, here? Three. Three? Here? Three. Three. Popular? Here? Five. Five. Interesting. Yes? Here? Three. And in the back? Four? And a half. Ooh. Someone's a compromiser. All right, watch this. This is interesting, too. Because there, there are always different numbers amongst you know, teams and groups, whatever. This represents our church. I heard you say, I don't care if people know my junk, right? <laughs> you represent a slice of people in every church. There are other people probably in the group of five here that are like, dude, no, no way I'm sharing that in a group, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm with you. I'd be up there with you. I, I, I'm very particular about who I'm going to share something that heavy with, right? But the, this represents our church and our churches. We can't say, well, they only had three, so I guess everybody's okay with sharing everything. No, you got people that could have been higher, right? All right, here we go. Most of us agree that in the majority of our churches, this is the operating system. So in a two-circle operating system that goes like this, what do you call those? Secrets. And what the enemy does with secrets is he says, you're disqualified. You're not allowed. There's nowhere, no outlet. That doesn't mean we've got to hang everything out. 
And you and people on the front end of you know one to one disciple making like I gotta share all that. No, we say with the with tools that are designed that way, with enough time and with the Holy Spirit, it becomes a very natural thing, and there's no forcing. You don't have to share everything, but we don't have many outlets where I where I can say as a husband, I think we're in trouble in my marriage. That doesn't mean we have to become counselors or anything, but I'm going to walk through that. The guy that I'm finishing up with now, fifth guy I've gone through these tools with, uh, the, he's got teenagers about the same as we do. Uh, and uh, the number of talks that we've had in the back of that pickup truck for me to say, I think I'm the stupidest parent on the planet. He goes, oh, no, let me tell you a story. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not the only one, right? And so those moments are so important. Listen, the world doesn't have that. They have friends, they have friendly environments, but they don't have that, and they so desperately need it. I'm going to close. We've got about two minutes. I'm going to share with you a story, a video story, from a guy in our church. Because our next session is about everyday people. Everyday people got to get in this game. This is not just for the pros. This guy's name is Chuck. Chuck's been in church culture for a long time. He's going to refer to 360. It's the name of our church. Going to refer to Exchange. It's the name of one of our tools. So you're not lost in, in, in the way we're going here. But I just want you to listen to Chuck's story and see how important it is. Shortly after we started coming to 360, we inquired about joining a group, a small group. After we joined the group, I discovered Exchange and decided that it was something that I wanted to uh, explore. Well, very quickly, um, after we got into Exchange, I started seeing how powerful the tool this, this program is because of the structure of exchange and the way that it proceeds it allows somebody to start at the very very fundamental basic tenets of Christianity and start building on that not only are you learning about your faith but you're also learning about being with another person and getting close and that's the part that I that's the part that really surprised me. And what really surprised me is how quickly that started happening. I'm a, um, a very reserved person. I don't open up to most people. I, you know, I don't share a lot. I've never shared a lot with a lot of people. And until I started exchange with Martin, um, I can honestly say that there's parts of my life that nobody has ever heard. That's not the case anymore. The power of someone listening and not judging is just unbelievable. I mean, it's, to know that I have the ability to talk about anything that's going on in my life
not have the fear, the worry, the embarrassment of, you know, thinking that what you're saying is being judged in some way. That's the power of, of what this has done for me. It takes a lot of work to be guarded. And it takes a lot of work to get over that. But, man, if you do, wow, what a difference. Yeah. If you, um, if you did text small circle uh, to 97,000, at the very last page, there'll be a link and uh, uh, those links will take you to our tools, which are, uh, you can, there are two ways to download the tools at no cost, to take you to the mobile app that we uh, offer and also to the PDFs. I sure appreciate you guys uh, selecting this, uh, this workshop. We'll see you. Well, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that track session. Make sure you stay tuned because up next, we've got another track session from Small Circle coming at you. And I just want to remind you to go ahead and mark those calendars for October 5th and 6th so you can come see us live and in person in Nashville, Tennessee for our 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. All right, everybody. Have a great day. Have a great day.